0: Uh, if you will, turn with me in your copy of scripture to Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5, picking up where we left off last week. Um, speaking of weeks, this week at home group, um, I have to say Caleb nailed it. Man, no claps. Yeah, Man, Caleb, Caleb destroyed that chicken in a good way. Um, He would smoke the chicken and it was like just the right amount of spice, Um, but different people have a different idea of what the right amount of spice is and that started a conversation. But someone at the table, I won't name any names, but he just led with Qatar, but he said that if it's too much spice, then he starts to sweat, and that creates a problem so um, that started a conversation about sweating because I have no table manners and will say weird things and so I shared about how disgusting I am, how much I sweat when I go to the gym um, and so what I used to be like I try to make it a regular habit of going to the gym it's just really good for me mentally and, and so many different ways but um, I used to try to like build a relationship it's kind of like a bar if you're familiar with the, the bar culture that Same time, same place, same people. And so I try to get to know the people that are in the gym at the same time as me and um, share share hope, share the gospel, things like that. But um, it it doesn't work out very well, I've learned in the culture of a gym, that people largely want to kind of just be to themselves, headphones in, doing their own thing, that kind of stuff. And so it was usually just weird. And I also realized that I am really gross, like disgusting. And so it's weird for me to try to have a conversation with somebody when they probably don't want to be within 10 feet of me. And so I've changed tactics a bit over the years. So we're now it's actually the primary place where I do sermon prep. Like I can just kind of focus and think through things, pray a lot and stuff like that. And so I have kind of adopted that mentality of like, it's, I'm, in, I'm in kind of the zone where I've, I'm not conscious of a lot of what's going on around me and so having adopted that mindset, um, recently I found myself finishing the workout, I'm in the bathroom trying to clean some of said disgustingness off of me, and this young man comes in, and he walks up and starts a conversation with me, and it catches me off guard. I'm like, whoa, this, this is just so unusual. But he catches me off guard, he starts, he actually wants to engage me, talk to me, and he asks me if I know the Kazatsky dance. And before I can respond, he's like, can you do the Kazatsky dance? If you don't know what that is, that's the Russian dance where you like you jump down and like kick your legs out back and forth over and over and over. And I still have not yet answered the kid before he demonstrates for me <laughs> this dance. In the bathroom, a place where like we're already in a gym where everyone kind of keeps to themselves, but especially in the bathroom. But here's this kid doing this dance for me and I have to say it was pretty not good. <laughs> like, <laughs> it was just really strange. Um, and he walks out. Like, he starts to walk away from me, and I'm just kind of there, just like, what just happened? Like, and he, I think it, it dawned on him that that was a really weird little experience we just had there together, and so as he's about to walk out the door, he turns and looks at me, and he says, it's a good leg workout, and then he <laughs> walks out. I'm just like, oh, that was amazing. That was amazing, but sometimes we're just not quite sure what to do, you know? <laughs> Sometimes we don't know what to do. And that's really the tension that we come into today's text with, is sometimes we just don't know what to do. And we want to make sure that what we do is what we should do, right? we should want that. We're in the midst now of the the latter half of the book of Ephesians. This is a letter that Paul wrote a couple thousand years ago to the church in Ephesus. And so this is the church that he helped plant. He's there for a couple years. Um, He leaves them with great tears. Like he has a very tender heart for these people. And so he's writing back to them, um, trying to address different issues and things like that. But he starts his gospel or this letter off with, this is the gospel. You know, this is the good news. You are chosen. You're forgiven. You're holy and blameless before him. He established this. This was because of what Jesus has done. Nothing that you could do. You have no reason to boast in anything but the Lord because he is your salvation. Jesus died the death that you and I deserve. He rose again victorious over it and calls us into everlasting life saying, believe in me. Turn from your sin. Confess to be a sinner. Confess him to be Lord. Trust him for salvation and follow him. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And then out of that, he says, because that is true, here's how we should live in light of that. That this, this saving faith is going to result in a transformed life. It's the good works that he prepared for us to walk in that we now get to live out. And so we're in the midst of that. Here are the the indicatives and the imperatives. The indicatives, this is the gospel. This is who you are, your position. Here are the imperatives. Here's how you live out of that position. So he's in this midst. And so we come to this saying, well, tell me, how should I live? Because I don't often know. Sometimes I'm like this young man who's trying to talk to an older man, and he's not that old, but he's he's here and he's gross, but I want to show him a dance. And it didn't go so well. But like, what do we do in every situation? How do we know what the right thing to do is? Or in other words, in light of the gospel, what is appropriate to do with our lives? And so Ephesians chapter 5, now look at verse 15 with me. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul continues. He says, pay careful attention then to how you live. Then means he's tying it back to what he just said. So everything we talked about last week, we're in the light. We live in the light of Christ. We shine the light of Christ. So pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. Paul is calling us to wisdom. He's telling us we are to live wisely. We're to know what to do in every situation. Seek wisdom. Be wise in the way that you live your life. And he says these opportunities must be acted on. Make the most of these opportunities. Make the most of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. That There is really this war being waged, And so we have got to make it count like this wartime mentality. You know, in times of war, you sacrifice. You need to make sure that communication is on point. You need to make sure that you have the supplies you need. You need to make sure that you are in the place you should be at all times. He's saying, make it count. Because you don't know how much time you have. It is limited. And so don't miss the opportunities. But what are the opportunities? It's to live according to God's wisdom. And that is an opposition to this evil age in which we are situated. This ties us back again. He says, then, so we have to think back. What did we cover in chapter 5, 6 through 14 last week? Shine. Shine. The light of Christ shines on you, and you get to now reflect that out to the world. You have been called the light of the world by Jesus himself. And so we're to live in such a way. So the goal is to live wisely, and now we have to ask, well, how? Paul is saying, here's what I want for you live wisely, make the most of every opportunity. And so we should ask, well, how then, Paul? So let's keep reading. Verse 17. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't be foolish. Foolishness is the opposite of wisdom. Don't be foolish. Sometimes we like to think, well, you just kind of are born that way. Like you're just simple, foolish. Like we think it's almost like a personality thing. Like, no, this is an act of command. Don't be foolish. Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Understand what the Lord's will is, is how we can make the most of every opportunity. And he's saying understand, not just know. And there's a difference there. There's a difference between understanding something and just knowing something. Understanding goes so much beyond knowing something. And it requires careful and considerable contemplation. You have to think about this. So if you want to act wisely, if you want to walk in wisdom, you want to do what he has called us to do in this, in light of the gospel, to make your life count, it's going to require some time and thought on your part. We have to think about this. So now he continues on. Look at 18. He says, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. So again, we're asking in light of our desire to live wisely, how can we do that? He says, don't be foolish. That's a good starting place. Understand or think about, really contemplate, consider what God's desire, his will is for you in every moment, in every situation. And now, don't get drunk on wine. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to reckless or foolish living, but be filled by the Spirit. And so note In Scripture, I'm kind of sidebar here, but related to this, we need to address this, that drunkenness is prohibited in Scripture. Alcohol is not. There is something that we should know that is called freedom and moderation, that we can enjoy something within the bounds of how God has established for us to enjoy it, like sex. That Sex is a beautiful gift from God that is greatly to be enjoyed, but it's to be enjoyed within the bounds of which God has made it to be designed for. So husband and wife, to enjoy sex is a wonderful gift. But when you go beyond those bounds, it suddenly is treacherous. And so the same is with alcohol. This is a gift, but this gift can be abused and misused. And that leads to treachery. And so scripture tells us over and over and over, we should view alcohol as a gift To be enjoyed in freedom, but in moderation. That drunkenness is prohibited. We're going into the holidays when drinking typically rises. And there's part of that, again, there is a gift here. But drunkenness is clearly, explicitly prohibited. So know the limit. But in the freedom of enjoying this gift from God within the bounds that he has given for it, We also know that our freedom sometimes is not freedom if it is hurting others. And so scripture tells us if we are in an environment where someone's conscience is not okay with the consumption of alcohol, then what do we do with our freedom? Just let it go. We don't want to offend them. And so part of our freedom is the freedom to say, I don't actually need that. And so we should be aware of our social situation when we enjoy these types of gifts. So sidebar close back to this, he's saying, why? What is this? Where did that come from? So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Why did he just throw that in there? Were they a bunch of drunks in Ephesus? Likely not. See this in context. What is he saying with this? He's saying being filled with alcohol leads to a loss of control. It's that reckless living. It's foolishness. Don't be filled with alcohol that leads to a loss of control. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, which also leads to a lack of control. This is a willful surrender to control of the Lord. It's a willful surrender to the Spirit who is now active in our lives. Because self-control actually comes from the giving the Spirit control. You gain self-control, it's called explicitly, we we covered this last year in Galatians, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. That if you want to have self-control, that actually comes from giving up control, surrendering it to the Spirit, who then gives you self-control. There's this beautiful paradox here that I'm giving up control not through alcohol, this drunkenness that leads to reckless living, but giving up control to God, who then gives me self-control, and that leads to righteousness. That leads to actually being in control here. So being full of wisdom, we have to see this, It's, it's being full of the Spirit, Being full of wisdom is not an impersonal thing. It is actually a very personal thing. It's God the Spirit filling us, granting us the wisdom that we need to walk wisely. And so uh, that said, there's a danger here. There's a danger that a lot of us experience. Um, I think like almost everyone I know who has been walking with our Lord for very long at all, as you dive into learning more and more about God, there's this danger of growing in our knowledge of God and neglecting our relationship with God. And so as we see, like to grow in our understanding of the Lord's will, to grow and being filled with the Spirit is a personal thing. It's not an impersonal, it's not about just, can I just fill my head with theological jargon? Can I just know more and more what the Scripture says so that I can just shout it out at any point? If you do that, you have missed the point of learning about God is to actually know Him intimately, to actually encounter Him, to experience God. And so all of our learning should lead to a greater experience and real love for him. Not just a bunch of head knowledge. So we want this personal God, be filled with the Spirit. And now you notice that that ends with a colon. So don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless loving, but be filled by the Spirit, colon. So now he's going to tell us, this is what the result of being filled with the Spirit is. So look at 19 speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. So what is the result of being filled with the Spirit and how we walk wisely, make the most of the time, because the days are short, they're full of evil? This is, this is the result of being filled with the Spirit. It's 19 says it's communication between believers that is filled with worship. It's just God-centric. That the way that we talk to each other is so saturated with the praise of God. That's what marks it. That's what defines it. It's just full of it. And what wisdom is found there? Are you in conflict right now with another believer? Do you want to know how to very quickly remedy so much of the issues that come, come about during those conflicts? Make God a part of that conversation. Every bit of it. As you talk to each other, that we're addressing each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that if God's praise is constantly on our lips, even in the way that we talk to each other, that God has been brought into the conversation, then how differently will we talk to each other? And so imagine, now practically this week, anytime there's a tension with you and another believer, imagine Jesus is right there with you. His spirit is. So God is in the room. He's a part of this conversation. And suddenly, We can have this conversation with wisdom. Then 20, it's gratitude for everything. And 21, it's submission to each other. This is the result of being filled with the Spirit. It's constant praise on our lips and the way we talk to each other. It's gratitude for everything and it's surrendering or submitting to each other. That's pretty wild. But do you see or feel the tension there? Look back at the text, 19, Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord. It's not just singing, it's not just playing an instrument well, it's making music with your heart. It's not just the action here, it's what's inside of you. Are you making music that comes from deep within you and then comes out in this wonderful, joyful offering? Are you making music with your heart? It reminds me of jazz music. If you know the history of jazz music, uh, jazz music is this kind of American concept but comes from different things like some African rhythms and different things coming, merging together. But a lot of what defines jazz music is these syncopated rhythms. When you're like in the off beats, there's other things filling it that are somehow on rhythm. And it's this emphasis on improvisation. The improv part of this is essential in jazz music. In other words, you have to just feel it that it comes out of you. You feel the music. You watch a true musician, jazz music or any, like the best of them, when you watch them and you see that they're not just playing because they've got this this tempo in their mind. There's uh, chord coming, chord coming. No, it's when they feel it, when it's coming from the heart, that it's just a part of them, that that's moving. Or even in um, more visual arts. I remember the first time that I was genuinely moved by a piece of art, it was a uh, the 1903 masterpiece by Picasso called the Old Guitarist. If you if you're not familiar with the painting, this this painting was done by Picasso after a tragic loss, and so he's grieving, and so he creates kind of a string of artworks that are just beautiful. But the Old Guitarist is very dark, lots of blues. In fact, the entire painting is blue, with the exception of a guitar that has kind of a yellow glow. But This man kind of wraps himself around framing this guitar as it's a a beggar who is blind. You can tell his eyes are kind of swollen in, they're closed. He doesn't have sight. His clothes are tattered, they're ripped. It's a beggar who is blind, and yet he has this guitar that is perfectly upright and has this yellow soft glow, and he's just wrapped around it. And you can tell that in the moment, he is wrapped up in this. He's consumed in the music, that despite his circumstances, he's enraptured with this music that is coming from this guitar. And you're just moved with it. The colors and the the flow, the arrangement of everything just draws you in. And he's like, I feel that with you. I've been brought into that world with you. This is making music from your heart. That is not just a performance. That, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sing the song because I read the lyrics on the screen is what's inside of you as you read those words and they come out of your mouth. Are you actually considering what this means to actually raise your voice to the God of the cosmos and to sing out these reminders and encouragements over the people of God that together we are here before the throne of grace because it is a throne of grace that we deserve to be just destroyed. And yet there's a God who says, I love you and you're mine and I delight in hearing you sing. It's when we sing from our hearts, it's when the music comes from our hearts that we're walking in wisdom. And then this gratitude for everything. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say to give thanks for? Everything. But there, there's a tension in that. Like, do I really give thanks for the way that that person murdered my loved one? No. No. That is not God's will. And yet, in the sovereignty of God and his providence, he's still at work redemptively in that. And so you have to be able to see beyond that and see and trust in the sovereignty along with the promises of God that he has our good. He's about his glory, but he's also for our good. He loves us. And he's over all things. But listen, you don't get there with just kind of cursory thoughts. It takes time to really think through this, to meditate, to ponder, to wonder. Why could a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good allow these things? It takes thought. It takes consideration. It takes wisdom. So being filled with the Spirit then leads to, in every circumstance, like Paul says, I've learned the secret to being content. That you learn that. You don't just receive that. You learn that. It takes time. So you learn to give thanks for everything because it's in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will not give thanks for everything until you can see how is that related to being in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he redemptively up to in this? How can I still trust him? Even if I have no other answer than to look back a couple thousand years and see that he died for me, I know he loves me. So I don't understand and I might never get the answer to this on this side of redemption but I'm going to trust him because I know his proven love. Think, meditate, wonder. And then the last one, in 21, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. Submission to one another. But it's in the fear of Christ that how I submit to you, how you submit to me, believers, this is in the fear of Jesus Christ, not the fear or respect of each other. As that means, if you have not earned my respect or I have not earned your respect, I'm still called to submit to you. It's in the fear of Jesus Christ that the way that I view him and because I want to submit to him, I will then submit to you. But it's in wisdom. It's in the fear of Christ. See the historic submission of Jesus. The way that he came into this earth and the incarnation, he humbled himself, emptied himself of glory, became a man obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The way that he submitted himself to this treachery, to this betrayal, to this barbaric death, that Jesus would die for you so that you would not have to pace the penalty for your sins. So that instead you could be welcomed into the very presence of God. And he would say, I love you and I've made a way for you. Jesus has done that for you. Submitted himself to that because he loves you. And it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame. But he came here happily, wanting to do that for you. That he loves you. He submitted to that. And so we can submit to each other in light of that gospel. That there's a God who loves me like that. He would literally love me to death. What a God. And so I'm freed up. Yeah, I can submit to you because I'm really just submitting to my Lord thinking of what he submitted himself to, considering his gospel, but this will only ever make sense if you think about it, if you meditate on it, if you let it fill you with wonder, and that leads to wisdom, time, and thought. Because remember this passage has Paul calling us to act wisely, to live wisely, to make the most of this time. So in that, our question we began with is just how can we know what is appropriate? What is God honoring and wise in any and every situation? How do I know what is the right thing to do? And it really comes down to this wisdom comes with wonder. If you want wisdom, spend the time lost in wonder. And then you find it. Ask for it. The promise of Scripture is if you ask for wisdom, He will give it to you. But you have to actually ask. And that's not just lip service. God, give me wisdom. I don't know what to do in this situation. That's no, a really seeking after him, requesting that. You have to really think about these things. Like the first night, the, the use of music and how music draws us in. And We're, we're to address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And that's the way we're supposed to talk to each other. Imagine like high school musical. Every week we come together and everybody just starts singing. I will leave. <laughs> Can't handle it. But do you see the beauty of this? That the way that we talk to each other is like music. It's like music coming from our hearts. And so we have to think about what would Paul be considering when he thinks of music? And address each other with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In his time, the book of psalms, as we know it, was like their songbook. Their actual songbook. Like they would sing the prayers the psalms from that book. And so these psalms are running through his mind all the time. He's singing them. They would come together and actually sing them together in corporate worship. And so if you think through those, I want to ask you, will you turn to one of those songs with me as we conclude? Turn to Psalm 63. This has been the psalm I've meditated on throughout this week. Psalm 63. This is a psalm of David. Uh, He's actually in the wilderness at this point. Um, If you know the story, David's life is literally threatened. Um, He's in danger. And so he has to flee at various points. And he's kind of in the waiting of like, am I king? Am I not king? I've been anointed king, but I'm not yet king. And and Saul wants to kill him, all this stuff. And so Psalm 63 um, records just one of the most beautiful songs or prayers I, I know of. Psalm 63, read it with me. Starting in verse one, as a prayer. God, You are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you, as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. You just sit in that. And I actually want you to do that. Bookmark that this week. I want you to spend an absurd amount of time in it. Just sitting in that. Thinking about it. Wondering what this means, that God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you in a land that is dry, desolate, and without water. So I gaze on you in the sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. Beloved, you have to seek him. You have to chase after him. You have to look for him, seek him. Long for him like you're dying of thirst and there is no water to be found, but you're gonna go to him. You're gonna gaze on him to see his strength, his glory. And do you know what that means to gaze on him? It's not a glance because just a glance is gonna totally miss him. You can't just glance at him. You've gotta gaze on him. Like set your eyes on him and just be lost in wonder as you gaze on him. And my lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. This is us singing, making music from the hearts, addressing each other in psalms and spiritual songs and hymns. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I'll lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. You praise him with your words because his love is actually better than life. Like, did you forget you're in a dry and desolate land. There's no water and you're dying. What are you going to do? I'm not going to keep running after water. I'm just going to go look at the Lord. I'm going to see his strength and his glory. He satisfies. Praise him. His love is better than life. I want to see the love of God. At the mention of your name, I will raise my hands. Could you imagine coming to a point when you hear the name of Yahweh, when you hear the name Jesus, that you cannot help but respond physically? That at the mention of your name, just I'll lift my hands. Oh, you Lord! And when I think of you, as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I'll rejoice in the shadow of your wings. You're gonna lose sleep thinking about him. He'll lose sleep thinking about God, who is our helper, that there are so many things that can keep us up at night, but instead to say, no, 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 I know my helper. I'd rather think of him. I'll fixate on him, the one who is my help. I will rejoice. I'll I'll again praise him in the shadow of his wings. Why are you in the shadow of his wings? Because it's not good and you need to be safe. You need shelter. A mother bird takes her child under her wing to protect. The little one cannot defend himself, cannot protect himself. You are in his wing, the shadow of his wing. You're there for shelter. That means things are not good outside of that, but I'm still going to rejoice. Here I am. You're my helper. I follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. You're going to chase after him, but all the while know that it's actually him who's holding on to you. I follow you closely, but your right hand holds on to me. Your right hand is the dominant hand. And so anthropomorphically to say that God's right hand is holding on to us is to say the thing of value, the thing that he is actively in pursuit of, the thing that he is tending to, I am in his right hand. So I chase after you, I follow after you, but you're the one who's actually holding on to me, God. Like that idea of the Spirit, that you gain self-control and letting go of control surrendering control to the spirit that he is now in control the music actually has to make it from our head down into our heart when it's in your heart it's going to naturally just pour out we'll be singing but that takes time it takes us thinking meditating wondering it takes time you have to gaze on god and take note of his gaze i i love art And I've often thought, I'm I'm not a good artist. But I'd love one day to create a masterpiece. Um, But if if it's involving anything with eyes, I've learned, here's the secret to anything that's gonna have eyes, human, animal, whatever. If you mess the eyes up, you've destroyed the whole thing. The eyes matter. As I've had this thought, don't steal it from me, actually do, but give me credit, I don't know. Like what if you could create a masterpiece where the eyes were actually reflective? Like you embed some kind of dimmed mirror into the eyes. And think about that. This is what David says in another psalm. So same guy who wrote that one about gazing in the sanctuary on the Lord to see his strength and his glory. Gaze on him. To have his gaze on him. This is what he said in Psalm 8, 17, 8. Um, This is pretty famous. He says, protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Same ideas there that he says in this later psalm. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. You may know it more famously as protect me as the apple of your eye. Have you heard that phrase? That colloquialism is actually brought into popularity by the King James translation. It says, protect me as the apple of your eye. Protect me as the pupil of your eye. A reflex, naturally, is to protect and to value our pupil. Because without it, I can't see. And so you go to the the eye doctor, they puff that thing and then it can never explain what they're actually doing. What do you do? Oh, good Lord. What is You instinctively, you protect your pupil. It's valued. It's cherished. We cherish that. We value that. We protect that. That pupil of your eye, the apple of your eye, apple, delicious fruit, something to be cherished, but delicate. You protect that. And here he is saying, protect me as the pupil of your eye the Hebrew word for pupil or apple is ishon. And this word ishon, um, ish, is etymologically man. And so if you take this and make it as literal of a translation as possible, what this would be saying is, reflect me as the little man of the eye. The little man of the eye. reflect me as the little, or protect me as the little man of the eye God. Why would David say that to God? Protect me as the little man of the eye. Again, if you get close to somebody and you look into their eyes, do you know what you see? You see a dim reflection of a little man, namely yourself. But as you get close and you look into the pupil of someone else, you see a reflection of you and now you're this little man in their eye. So what he's saying is, God, protect me as the thing that you're actually gazing on. Do you know the beauty of thing? As you gaze on the Lord and you look into his eyes, what do you see there? You see that his gaze is set on you. You are the little man in his eye. His eyes are on you. There's nothing that escapes his gaze, but his eyes are on you. That he loves you like that. You are the apple of his eye that he has set his love, he has set his gaze on us. And so to gaze on him is to see the way that he gazes on us and says, I am cherished, I am loved, I'm defended, I'm protected, I have everything I need. Here in the shadow of his wing, his gaze is on me. He loves me. Do you know that he loves you like that? And this is how we can live wisely, is to see how loved we are by God, but we have to look at him. We have to spend time in that, be lost, be caught up in the wonder of a God who would love us in this way. So think on that. Skeptic, seeker, stumbling or doubting saint, I ask will you believe this good news? The you're in his eyes, he sees you, and he loves you. I'm a follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? Let's do that. Will you pray with me? Father, you are holy and there is no one like you. You are above all and yet you are with us. Thank you that we are in your eyesight, that your gaze is on us and help us, God, to be a people who would gaze on you in the sanctuary, to see your strength and your glory, not to just catch a glimpse, but God, to gaze on you. God, we know that that will take time And we live in a culture and especially a season right now as we approach the holidays where there is so little time. But would you help us to slow down, to take the time that it takes to see you and in seeing you to be reminded of how much you love us, what you have done for us. Help us to live wisely, to make the most of our time because the days are evil. But we know the day is coming when evil will be no more. So we ask for you to come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.